Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Hopefully everything is working. It's Friday evening, you guys. I had to reschedule last night because of technical troubles, but I'm hoping that they have all been quashed, squashed, squished. What do we do to technical troubles to take care of them? We do something graphic and violent and bloody, I'm sure. Hopefully everything is working. Hopefully you will be able to hear me, all you lovely people who are hanging out with me here this wonderful Friday evening. I see in the YouTube chat we have Catherine Bell with us tonight. Hi, Catherine. She just described Bayorn over on Twitter as her Tolkien husband. At least I assume she was talking about Bayorn. We don't meet any other really significant characters in this chapter, so I'm really hoping it's him. We have, who else was? Allie is joining us. Uh, Allie, to the best of my knowledge, has only ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies and has not yet read The Hobbit, but she is with us tonight, showing solidarity. Allie, you're going to have a great time and hopefully you'll be able to keep up. We have Jackie and Dylan and Garrett. We have everyone here with us, guys. Thank you so, so much for joining me and everything is working. Mary is here. Hi, Mary. Glad to see you. Excellent. It is all working. This is the seventh part of our There and Back Again series. Tonight, we are looking at Chapter 7, Queer Lodgings. We have entitled, I say we, I have entitled tonight's session, The Other Side, because we're going to see what life is like on the other side of the Misty Mountains, continuing some of our conversation from last week about the conflict between the West and the Wild. But we're also going to see Bilbo on the other side of a fairly familiar event, the alternate title for tonight's session was Another Unexpected Party. We'll get to all of that in due course. As ever, you can ask questions and make comments in the YouTube chat window, which is right here next to the video. On Twitter, using the hashtag backagain, though the hashtag backagain is becoming less and less useful, as apparently a lot of people are using it to mark their return to Twitter after some kind of hiatus. That search term, that category that I have here in TweetDeck, is becoming less and less useful. So I think what we're going to do starting this week is transition out of back again, back to the original hashtag that we had for this series, which is SW again. That is SWAGAIN, S-W-A-G-A-I-N. Let's see if that sticks. Let's see if that takes. There are some other suggestions out there. We can always just revise it week to week. Who says that we have to be slaves to convention here on there and back again? No one. That's who. We are going to look tonight at Bayorn. Oh, we, we can also, of course, let me call it up right here so I can see it. We have Kate and we have Gina, and we have Julie and we have Chillin' Out Max and hanging out in, oh, and Rachel too, and Chris, I guess, who is also in the YouTube chat, hanging out in the Discord chat room. If you are a Patreon supporter over at patreon.com slash storywonk, then you get exclusive access to our uh to our Discord chat room, and you can hang out there, and I can see everything that you're saying. Both chats for life, says the cat. That's right. Why would you limit yourself to one chat when you can talk in two places simultaneously and make things all the harder for me? I like it. I like it. If there was another chat room that I could add to this entire experience, I would. Maybe some kind of subreddit AMA format. We can we can try and work that in too. Let's, let's just try and spin more plates here in the live session, shall we? Speaking of the Patreon page, we have a quick announcement. Technically speaking, the voting for the spring seminar book doesn't end until midnight tonight. But unless there is a giant upset, my fantastic and valiant and generous Patreon supporters have chosen for our next discussion, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I am extremely excited about this book. I adore this book. And coming to this book from my unique perspective, from my transatlantic perspective, which of course I share with Neil Gaiman, I think gives me an insight into this text 
that certainly talking to Americans about American gods is always fascinating. It is always fascinating. I'm coming to the conclusion that you cannot be American if you are going to explore and to a certain extent satirize American culture. American Gods is going to be an absolutely fascinating discussion, and it's a discussion that we're going to be starting soon. I wish that I had a firm start date for you tonight. I don't, but look for one in the next few days, because what I would really love to do is run eight or nine sessions on the novel of American Gods prior to the beginning of the Star's adaptation of American Gods, which takes place at the end of April. I think we are currently nine weeks out. So there may be a final week, first week overlap between the spring seminar and the TV adaptation. Stick around. I will have announcements. I don't yet know when or where that seminar is going to take place. Well, I mean, I know where it's going to be right here on YouTube, of course, and there will be a podcast version available after the fact. But My schedule is getting a little full for evening seminar classes. So what I'm thinking about doing is maybe doing this in the afternoon, Central or Eastern time here in the U.S., maybe a Tuesday afternoon. We'll have to see how it works out. But stay tuned for all the announcements. I cannot wait. And also, thank you for voting. It has been really interesting to see how the votes have been cast. In second place this time around was Audrey Niffnegger's fantastic and, and, and heartbreaking novel, The Time Traveler's Wife. We will definitely get to that in the near future. There was a lot of support for uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which we will discuss definitely in the future. There was a lot of support for The Name of the Wind, which we will definitely, uh, definitely discuss in the future, and for the Dresden Files series, specifically the first novel, Stormfront. Jim Butcher's Dresden Files series is fascinating, is unique, or or was at least unique in its conception. It has, of course, as every successful series does, spawned a host of imitators. But Butcher manages to do something that those imitators have so far, I think, pretty comprehensively failed to do, which is properly unite this vibrant and stark and monochromatic noir aesthetic with urban fantasy, with with an herbal paranormal story. There's a lot to love, not least of all the audiobooks of the Dresden Files series, as read by James Masters of Buffy and Angel fame. That's Spike, for those of you who haven't kept up with Buffy and don't know the names of the cast. All of those books I think we will cover in the future. Again, stay tuned for big announcements, capital B, capital A, big announcements within the next week or possibly two. I'm stepping up production for the seminar series because I love doing this. I love discussing these books with you. I love this live interactive environment. I love moving through books that are oftentimes somewhat overlooked or oftentimes somewhat undervalued or have been presented to people through the ages as... As, as obligations that have been presented to people as works that you simply have to devour in order to be well-read. And that hmm, doesn't always do these books the greatest service. So I would like to look at some modern classics. So I would like to look at some of the texts that all of us, or at least most of us, studied in high school and really draw out the qualities of the literature. There's a lot to discuss. I have big plans, you guys, as I always do. So stick around for that. And thank you to everyone who voted I'm really hoping it will probably be the week after next. I'm probably not going to be able to pull something together next week, but maybe the week after next we'll get started on American Gods. But nothing, but nothing, but nothing is going to interrupt our discussion of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. We are going to continue moving through The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings. This is going to be our life now for the next 18 months or so, I guess. I can't wait. I just can't wait. Every time I sit down to prepare the next reading for There and Back Again, I find myself 
excited, I find myself inspired, I find myself buoyed up, particularly in the context of The Hobbit, because I'm coming to the conclusion that I like The Hobbit more with every subsequent chapter. I don't think there's a point in this book where we take a step back. I don't think that there's a point in this book where things become less engaging or less complex or less challenging or less rich. I think this is not a book that necessarily puts its best foot forward. By the time we're done, we're going to be dealing with an entirely different kind of narrative, an entirely different kind of story. And we should get into that because, of course, I have a lot to cover tonight and I have a hard out. This is not one of these evenings where I can drift merrily on toward 10 o'clock central time here. I actually have to stop sharp at 9.30. So let's do this thing and see how much of this reading we can actually cover. As I said, we're discussing chapter seven tonight, Queer Lodgings, in which we descend from the Misty Mountains, we descend from the uh, from the um, Eagle's Eyrie into the wild, into the lonely lands to the east. We meet with Bayorn, we make it all the way to the very fringes of Mirkwood, and then we get a strong and strange farewell. I'm really looking forward to discussing these chapters. Let's see. It's The Journey to Amazing, says Becca, which is an excellent title. It would have made for a very good uh, a very good title for this podcast series. Um, Victoria is here and Kim is here. This is all wonderful. Um, G.J. Corbin said, I listened to the Once of a Wife seminar while reading Pride and Prejudice for High School. really helped me appreciate my, at the time, rapidly becoming favorite book. That's exactly what I'm talking about, is that that so often these stories are studied in exactly the way that Tolkien decried. Pride and Prejudice is oftentimes represented, particularly to high school readers or to college readers, as a book which must be unlocked, as a book which must be understood. There is somewhere a Rosetta Stone that will allow you to properly parse Austen's work. And there is, in some sense, merit to that. I think deep analysis and the application of contextual knowledge to that text in particular really draws out some of the provocative vibrancy of Austen's storytelling. But what it encourages you to do is overlook the story is not to pay attention to the narrative itself. And Pride and Prejudice is by no means the worst example of that. If you ever read The Catcher in the Rye in school and hated that book, I completely understand. But let me tell you, The Catcher in the Rye is a knockout book. We'll get to that some fine day too. Really glad you guys are all here. Let's get to it. Though, of course, we are going to begin first by going backward. I didn't have time at the end of last week's session to discuss the very last paragraph of chapter six. And it is a paragraph which contains an enticing, uh, a singular, an unprecedented, and an unrepeated beat in Bilbo's story. Let's take a look at the very last chapter. The very last passage, passage, excuse me, of chapter six. So ended the adventures of the Misty Mountains. Soon Bilbo's stomach was feeling full and comfortable again, and he felt he could sleep contentedly, though really he would have liked a loaf and butter better than bits of meat toasted on sticks. He slept curled up on the hard rock more soundly than he had done on his feather bed in his own little hole at home. But all night he dreamed of his own house and wandered in his sleep into all his different rooms, looking for something that he could not find, nor remember what it looked like. This dream will never be mentioned again. We will never hearken back to it. We will never reference it as proof of Bilbo's transformation during this journey, if indeed it is proof of Bilbo's transformation during this journey. More on that in just a moment. We will never look at this again, but... 
it does create a stark transition from the first into the second act. And we talked a little about that first act transition and exactly where it falls. For me, I would put the the first act transition right at the end of chapter five with Bilbo escaping from beneath the Misty Mountains back into the open air. But there is an argument that the transition occurs only when Bilbo is plucked from the tree by the eagles. And that transition is important because The Hobbit is a book which moves forward with such great purpose from chapter to chapter, from event to event, even within the same chapter, in fact. And Bilbo's arc is powerful and compelling through those events and circumstances. The structural turning points in this story can be tracked and plotted with great acuity and can tell us a great deal about Bilbo himself. Now, I said that after our transition into the wild, we would get something of a respite. And that is what chapter seven is. Tonight's reading will be something of a respite. We sit around, we tell stories, we replenish and restore ourselves. But we're also doing a lot of foreshadowing. We're foreshadowing through the first half of the chapter, Beorn. And then through the back half of the chapter, we begin to foreshadow the journey into the east. More on that as we get to it. But let's take a look at this chapter, uh, at this passage, excuse me, a little more carefully, a little more specifically, because we are going to see Bilbo trying to understand his experiences here in the wild through the prism of his understanding, through through the, the prism of his experience of the Shire and of the kindly West, a phrase which a number of you used in your emails and and comments to me this last week, which will become extremely relevant right at the end of The Hobbit. He's going to try to understand these new experiences through the context of his prior experiences, and he is going to be somewhat brought short by that. When Gandalf talks about Beorn and describes him as a skin changer, and Bilbo misunderstands and believes that Beorn is a furrier, that he skins animals and makes items of clothing from them, Gandalf sternly warns him not to say a thing. And we get the somewhat comedic list of things that he ought not to mention. Bilbo's understanding here serves him poorly, could potentially put him in a great deal of danger. So Bilbo has to see a certain evolution, a certain shifting in his own perspective. He has to come to understand the wild. And mostly that's going to happen next week and in the, uh, in chapters eight and nine, I should say, of The Hobbit. But we'll begin to see that even within this chapter. We'll begin to see that transition. Though Bilbo himself, interestingly, kind of recedes into the background of the narrative once we're at Bayorn's. We'll, we'll see how all of that plays out. What I want to highlight, though, is this notion of Bilbo at the end of chapter six, dreaming of his home and wandering from room to room and failing to find something that he knows by implication to be important, but he doesn't know where it is and he can't remember what it looks like. And quite simply, for me, this is proof not that Bilbo has become an adventurer, not that the Turkish side has slain the Baggins side of Bilbo's nature and that he is now ready for greater and greater adventures. It is simply an observation that Bilbo can be comfortable at home but he will now be incomplete, that he has gained something here on the road, that he has gained something here in the wide blue yonder that serves him, that that feeds him, that, that speaks to his essential nature. 
Now, at this point, he doesn't know what that thing is. He doesn't know where it is, and he doesn't know what it looks like. And I would urge you, as we move through the second act, certainly, and then into the third, to consider what that might be. What is it now that Bilbo cannot find at home? Throughout the first act, we've discussed this tendency of Bilbo's to think of his home and his hearth, to think of his kettle whistling out to let him know that tea will be ready soon, or bacon. God knows, Bilbo thinks of bacon more than most people. But now we're learning that that home of of safety and comfort is insufficient. So keep track as we move forward of of what it is that Bilbo is... um, that Bilbo is now looking for, that, that he would be incomplete without. Um, Luke asks, is Bjorn a corruption of a Norse name? It feels like it could have had a J in there at one point. It is not actually a Norse name, though certainly I can see where you're coming from. It's not Bjorn. It is Bjorn. Bjorn is actually the Anglo-Saxon word for bear. We're going to talk a little about names and naming And though no one is going to say it directly, we're going to hearken all the way back to the very first chapter of The Hobbit in that discussion. I'll I'll have that on a slide in just a moment. Yes. Um, Good. Good. Excellent. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yes, I'm being chastised once again for, uh, for leaving the slides up too long. I know. I always just forget to take them down. It's a terrible thing. Let's push on then into chapter seven, now that I've spent the first 20 minutes framing this discussion, and begin with Bilbo's descent from the Eyrie on the Eagle. And this is one of those moments, I think, where we will see Bilbo's failure to properly integrate his experience here in the wild with his understanding of how the world works. This time he was allowed to climb onto an eagle's back and cling between his wings. The air rushed over him and he shut his eyes. The dwarves were crying farewells and promising to repay the Lord of the Eagles if ever they could, as off rose fifteen great birds from the mountainside. The sun was still close to the eastern edge of things. The morning was cool, and mists were in the valleys and hollows, and twined here and there about the peaks and pinnacles of the hills. Bilbo opened an eye to peep, and saw that the birds were already high up, and the world was far away, and the mountains were falling back behind them into the distance. He shut his eyes again and held on tighter. Don't pinch, said his eagle. You need not be frightened like a rabbit, even if you look rather like one. It is a fair morning with little wind. What is finer than flying? Bilbo would have liked to say, a warm bath and late breakfast on the lawn afterwards. But he thought it better to say nothing at all and to let go his clutch just a tiny bit. Though here, arguably, we do see the first hint of that transition. We do see the first hint of that reframing. Because while Bilbo is uncomfortable, while Bilbo is all but panicked here, riding this great eagle through the air, away from the Misty Mountains and into the wild of the east, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say out loud a warm bath and late breakfast on the lawn afterward. And he does release his hold on the eagle just a little. This is... Arguably, I think the first time that Bilbo has given up his own control and his own perspective voluntarily, that he has embraced a different perspective. And of course, the eagles, as we discussed last time, as representatives of the wild, embody a fundamentally different perspective than Bilbo's own. 
they are not like him. They are not like any of the peoples that he has encountered thus far. They are not good people, capital G, capital P, like the elves. They are not bad people, capital B, capital P, like the goblins. They are not somewhere in the middle like the dwarves, and they certainly but certainly are nothing at all like hobbits. But here, Bilbo is able to to transfer his awareness and his perspective into, well, if not quite the eagle's awareness and perspective, something more like it than his own. I would also, because we're talking a lot through this seminar series about the story and about the world building and about the philosophy and about catastrophe and Baggins and Token, all the big ideas contained within the pages of The Hobbit, but also we must never forget that Tolkien could write the professor could craft a sentence like very few writers in the English language. And I want to pay very close attention to the middle layer of that first paragraph. The sun was still close to the eastern edge of things. The morning was cool, and mists were in the valleys and hollows, and twined here and there about the peaks and pinnacles of the hills. I love the sense of wonder. I love the specificity of the sun was still close to the eastern edge of things that from this vantage point, you can see everything. And the sun clings close to that eastern edge because beyond that, there is nothingness. Not because the world is small, but because the world is great and our perspective is privileged in this moment. Then, of course, the morning was cool, mists in the valleys and hollows, the peaks and pinnacles of the hill. There may be something something somewhat tautological about the peaks and pinnacles of the hill. There may be a certain amount of repetition contained in that concept, but poetically, lyrically, it works beautifully. And of course, many of you commented on Bilbo's perspective. Now, we talked a lot back in chapter five. Let me kill the, uh, kill the slide here. We talked a lot back in chapter five about the eye riddle, uh, about the, the riddle that draws the connection between the sun and the daisy. And we talked then about about a similar relationship between Bilbo and Gollum, a relationship of condescension. That is, Bilbo is great, he is elevated, he is in the high place, and he is looking down on Gollum in the low place and recognizing a kinship. And there is, I think, something to that idea that is replicated here. Bilbo is not looking down. He's not looking around. He, unlike the eagles, who we're told have very acute eyesight, the eagles, we are told, do not look to the sun. Instead, they scour the surface of the earth for prey. Now, that's a very different take on this privileged vantage point, particularly when we bear in mind the kinship drawn between the sun and the daisy in the riddle. Bilbo is not like the eagles, but he too is not embracing this privileged perspective. He too is failing to look down upon the world with empathy, with condescension, with a sense of full and robust kinship. Bilbo still hasn't transitioned completely and perhaps will never transition completely. What do we make of this? Oh, Kim says, let go his clutch of home. In part, yes, though. I think I've said every week since we started discussing The Hobbit, how careful we must be never to simply relegate the opposition, the conflict, the internal duality of the Baggins and Took sides of Bilbo's character, we must never collapse that into a simple Disney-esque message that, that Bilbo used to be about home, but now he's about adventure, and that's better. Well, no. 
Bilbo was still dreaming of home. Bilbo was still looking back toward the West. He is just now finding that insufficient, or perhaps not even consciously. Through his dream, we know that there is something missing from that experience from him now. Bilbo is at his best, at his strongest, moving only toward an integration. Bilbo is seeking to, again, not consciously, but Bilbo is seeking to unite Baggins and Took. There is nothing wrong with the comforts of home. There is nothing wrong with the comfort of civility and custom and culture. These are good and noble and valiant and worthy things. So Bilbo is not leaving behind cowardice or predictability or respectability and engaging with adventure and heroism and daring do. He is living both lives. He is drawing on his Baggins side to support himself as he moves forward. And we will see later in the story, not much later in the story, actually, but we will see later in the story, the direct application of that Baggins side in the service of others. The Baggins side will triumph when the Took side, the took side of, of Bilbo's character would falter. So we'll continue to track that as we go. Yes. Oh, we're calling out for the great Gatsby. We're calling out for... Uh, for Catcher in the Rye, we're calling out for Hemingway, yes. Uh, On the Road by Kerouac, of course. Yes, I'm really interested in the idea of doing a seminar series. Perhaps a, a short, hmm, perhaps a series of short seminars, three or four part seminars, looking at those, those classic books. I mean, and it's interesting too, of course, because the classic books that I read when I was in high school are a little different from the classic books that are read in American high schools and in high schools all around the world. It is unlikely that you would read, unless you were in the northeast of Scotland, the maudlin and genuinely terrible Sunset Song by Lewis Grassett Gibbon. But let me tell you, I spent a semester plowing through that. That one I probably won't be going back to. That one does not perhaps have the... Uh, that one does not perhaps have the, uh, the the width and the breadth and the depth that we would like it to have. Good. Um, <clears throat> scroll down. Yes, I'm scrolling down. We've got it. Um, that was so 20 minutes ago. It says it doesn't connect. Yes, it didn't update, but you guys were being fascinating 20 minutes ago. So now I'm scrolling down and I'm seeing everything that is here. Yes. Um, the took side can get you killed, says Luke Hopkins. It certainly can. And Jackie says the bag side is the stable side, I think, or rather the reliable side. And these are the these are the unlovely virtues of the Baggins side of, of Bilbo's nature. And, and we'll certainly return to this as Tolkien builds out the world of the Shire. And we must remember that the Shire is not yet the Shire. I'm using that terminology because almost no one is coming to the Hobbit now without an understanding of what Hobbit culture is like. But in the pages of the Hobbit, we're dealing with Bag End, and we're dealing with Hobbiton, we're dealing with Underhill, and we're dealing with these, these very simple and, at this point, fairly underdeveloped places. But when we return to Hobbit culture in the first movement of the Fellowship of the Ring, we're going to really be able to explore the tension between those different impulses, between the, the Bungo Baggins and the Belladonna Tooks of the world, as it were. And we're going to see, too, more importantly, the influence of Bilbo's adventure on Hobbit culture. That's fascinating and oftentimes overlooked, too. Yes. Um, <laughs> Kate says, that was rude. We're fascinating all the time. You certainly are. I'm, I'm not at all, G.J. Corbin, saying that you haven't been fascinating for 20 minutes. I'm saying that you were fascinating 20 minutes, and I just started. Yes, good. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's keep going forward. Right. Um, because... We're going to move forward to 
to a part of this story, which is, I think, oftentimes dissatisfying for people. Um, and this, I think, is a consequence of the kind of attention that Tolkien paid to his secondary creation, to his world building. Other writers would motivate and justify on the page why certain things were occurring. Tolkien understood the root of things. He understood the primary motivations, the in-universe motivations, which caused events to happen, and doesn't always completely represent those motivations on the page. We're going to talk about Gandalf leaving the party, and we're going to talk about why Gandalf is leaving the party in due course. But right now, he's just going to go. It feels like like a completely unmotivated break, actually. It feels as though this is happening just so that the dwarves and Bilbo are left to their own devices, just so they are cast into trouble. There are good reasons why Gandalf is doing what he is doing, but we won't find them out for a good long while. Um, good. Okay, so let's take a look at this next slide. This is after Gandalf has told them that he is leaving. The dwarves groaned and looked most distressed, and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them out of difficulties. I'm not going to disappear this very instant, said he. I can give you a day or two more. Probably I can help you out of your present plight, and I need a little help myself. We have no food and no baggage and no ponies to ride, and you don't know where you are. Now, I can tell you that. You are still some miles north of the path which we should have been following if we had not left the mountain pass in a hurry. Very few people live in these parts, unless they have come here since I, was since I was last down this way, which is some years ago. But there is somebody that I know of who lives not far away. That somebody made the steps on the great rock, the Carrack, I believe he calls it. He does not come here often, certainly not in the daytime, and it is no good waiting for him. In fact, it would be very dangerous. We must go and find him. And if all goes well at our meeting, I think I shall be off and wish you, like the eagles, farewell wherever you fare. They begged him not to leave them. They offered him dragon gold and silver and jewels, but he would not change his mind. We shall see, we shall see, he said. And I think I have earned already some of your dragon gold when you have got it. Here we get the first hint of foreshadowing. This is... The first hint of Beorn as a character, this somebody who lives by the Carrick. And we're getting, again, very primal descriptions here. There is a somebody. He can help, but not yet. We must go and find him. We must go and seek him. DJ Corbin says in the YouTube chat, there's something really poetic about farewell wherever you fare. There certainly is. I just love it. I just adore that as as a sentiment and as a representation too. It is somewhat, hmm, it does feel as though it is possessed of a slightly different texture. It is correct, of course. It is grammatically and syntactically correct, but it isn't quite ordinary. There is something otherworldly about it. And, and Tolkien is skilled beyond all others, I think, at pulling out that otherworldliness. Yes. Hope says, I know I'm late to the party, but the ability of the professor to make a small thing feel like part of a big thing while still being a small thing, the Hobbit part of the series, while standing alone. Oh, and 
it just moved, so I didn't quite get it. There you go. Has been quite impressive to me as a newcomer. Hope continues to the awesomeness that is this universe. I completely, completely agree, Hope. I think that the depth of Tolkien's creation, his secondary creation here, and his willingness to give both actual depth and the illusion of depth are powerful contributors to the sense that that Middle-earth is sprawling and epic and immense and well-ordered, that there is a reason behind everything. And oftentimes in Tolkien, we feel as though there's a reason behind everything because there's actually a reason behind everything, even here in The Hobbit. Certainly by the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, that will be exponentially more true, which will mean that we take a long time to discuss exactly how that works. Yes. Good. Yes, and, and Princess Ostrich here in the YouTube chat is pulling out, I think, one of the one of the viable thematic interpretations here. Princess Ostrich, which is a great name, by the way, says, I like Gandalf the nanny teacher who then and now just abandons them to grow up. And there is a sense, narratively speaking, in which we mark that transition from the first act into the second with the absence of Gandalf. Now the dwarves are left to stand alone. And we must remember that Gandalf has pretty comprehensively saved the dwarves time and time again, that Gandalf defeated the trolls, or at least tricked the trolls until they defeated themselves. It is Gandalf who led them to Rivendell. It is Gandalf who saved them in Goblin Town, and it is Gandalf who is responsible for the rescue by the eagles. The eagles only rescued the dwarves because they owed Gandalf. That's important. That's something that we should not overlook. And now his absence means that the dwarves are going to have to stand on their own. This is one of the things which breaks this story into its act structure. Here we go, moving into the second act, though again, not quite yet. Good. Yes. Princess Ostrich continues, when he leaves them in front of the Mirkwood. Looks dark, eh? Have fun. Pretty much. Pretty much that's how it goes. Yes. Um, so we introduced Bayorn, and I want to continue this with the next slide here because um, this is where we get into the the naming convention that we've discussed before. Bilbo is asking at this point about the Carrick, to which Gandalf replies, he called it the Carrick because Carrick is his word for it. He calls things like that Carracks, and this one is the Carrick because it is the only one near his home and he knows it well. Who calls it? Who knows it? The somebody I spoke of. A very great person. You must all be very polite when I introduce you. I shall introduce you slowly, two by two, I think, and you must be careful not to annoy him or heaven knows what will happen. He can be appalling when he is angry, though he is kind enough if humored. Still, I warn you, he gets angry easily. The dwarves all gathered round when they heard the wizard talking like this to Bilbo. Is that the person you're taking us to? Excuse me. Is that the person you're taking us to now? They asked. Couldn't you find someone more easy-tempered? Hadn't you better explain it all a bit clearer? And so on. Yes, it certainly is. No, I could not. And if I was explaining very carefully, answered the wizard crossly, if... And I was explaining very carefully, answered the wizard crossly, excuse me, if you must know more, his name is Bjorn. He is very strong. And he is a skin-changer. So <laughs> Dylan says on Twitter, he calls it Carrick because that is his word for it. It sounds a lot like Gandalf means me. And yes, yes, I think there is a certain commonality here with our naming. As I mentioned, Beorn means simply bear. And we've discussed the way in which certain words are 
emblematic of themselves. They are totemic of themselves in Tolkien's naming convention here at the beginning of, of The Hobbit. Bilbo lives under the hill. The Lonely Mountain is the Lonely Mountain. Rivendell is Rivendell. Goblin Town is Goblin Town. The Misty Mountains are the Misty Mountains. So on and so on and so forth. Names are generally representative of exactly what that thing is, oftentimes pulled from another language. Later on, we'll get to Lake Town and we'll get to Dale. We have already passed Bywater, of course. Bywater, named because it is by the water. It's good, good solid naming convention there, good solid hobbit naming convention. But here we see that Bayorn replicates or mimics or echoes that naming convention, that Bayorn has no interest in the name of the thing beyond its nature. He has no interest in the grandiose naming of something. And that, again, stands at odds with the civil, with the West, with society and with culture. If we remember when Bilbo emerges from the Misty Mountains and he comes down into the glade, having decided that he is going to go back and rescue his dwarven friends and compatriots, he instead hears their voices and he slips down among their number, wearing the ring, removes it and gives them quite a start, at which point Balin reintroduces himself. Balin doffs his hood and says, Balin, at your service. To which Bilbo replies, Bilbo Baggins, at yours. That exchange of formal names, the idea that names mean more than they say, seems to be in some sense a relic of civilization or uh, an indicator of civilization, perhaps. And we're going to be able to continue to look at that as we move into the next part of the chapter, certainly next week and then the following week too. We're going to be able to look at, at a civilization which is not entirely civil. We're going to be able to look at a civilization which coexists within and with the wild. That's going to be fascinating, but we must continue to think of names as significant in the here and the now. Yes. Um, good. Chesley Smith says, Helcaraxa to Bywater, grandiose to mundane, everything is there. Yes, though... Hmm. Yes, of course, though, we must remember who is telling the story. We must always remember when we think of Tolkien who is telling the story. One of the definitive things about the Silmarillion is that the Silmarillion ex itself, the, 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 the book, the collected writing itself is an elven text. It was written and composed by elves from an elvish perspective. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are composed by hobbits. They are that much closer to the ground, figuratively and, of course, literally. The elves will name. The elves take great delight in naming. If you sit down and you read the Silmarillion and you take a drink every time something is renamed or gets a new name or it has its name somehow transformed in meaning and significance, you will never make it through that book. Names are fantastically important to elves. But they're not fantastically important, it would seem at least, to hobbits. We'll circle back around to that too. So many pins. We're just putting pins left and right here. Yes. Good. As Katie says, it depends on the language. Is it in Elvish, Dwarvish, or the tongues of man? Yes, exactly. Good. Good. The Silmarillion heart, says Jackie there. <laughs> yes, and of course, we are... Um, Damn dirty gamers says you'll die of liver poisoning by chapter two. You absolutely will. Yes, if you make it out of the Aina without some kind of, of, of serious, you know, uh, pharmacological condition, then I'll be surprised. Um, 
Good. Yes, excellent. Um, and Chesley here uh, calls out, of course, the beat that inspired, in part, the name of this week's session. The dwarves meeting Bjorn is very reminiscent of the dwarves meeting Bilbo. Yes, and we get the explanation of it right here. Um, you must all be very polite when I introduce you. I shall introduce you slowly, two by two, I think. And you must be careful not to annoy him, or heaven knows what will happen. Of course, Gandalf wasn't frightened that the dwarves would annoy Bilbo or anger Bilbo. Bilbo is not, I think it's probably fair to say, appalling when he is angry. But Gandalf certainly plays the same trick. This is, again, the unexpected party from the first chapter of The Hobbit. But what's crucial is that Bilbo is now on the other side. He is not receiving, he is being received. He is now complicit in Gandalf's great plan. And we'll get into that right now with the introduction of Beorn. Who are you and what do you want? He asked gruffly, standing in front of them and towering tall above Gandalf. As for Bilbo, he could easily have trotted through his legs without ducking his head to miss the fringe of the man's brown tunic. I am Gandalf, said the wizard. Never heard of him, growled the man. And what's this little fellow? He said, stooping down to frown at the hobbit with his bushy black eyebrows. This is Mr. Baggins, a hobbit of good family and unimpeachable reputation, said Gandalf. Bilbo bowed. He had no hat to take off and was painfully conscious of his many missing buttons. I am a wizard, continued Gandalf. I have heard of you if you have not heard of me, but perhaps you have heard of my good cousin Radagast, who lives near the southern borders of Markwood. Yes, not a bad fellow as wizards go, I believe. I used to see him now and again, said Bjorn. Well, now I know who you are, or who you say you are. What do you want? Bjorn is not civil. Beorn is of the wild. Beorn may be, hmm, again, I hesitate before I make these declarative statements, Beorn may be the wildest figure that we will meet in the pages of The Hobbit. He may be most representative, most emblematic of the wild in all its complexity, in all of its virtue, certainly, but also in all of its savagery. And we see some hint of that right here in this introductory scene. Who are you and what do you want is not a courteous beginning. Think back now to the very beginning of the very first chapter when we have the interaction between Bilbo and Gandalf, the good morning interaction. Gandalf observes at the time how many things Bilbo uses good morning for, and in so doing pokes a gentle kind of fun at the conventions of polite conversation. This is an observance. This is not a a genuine interaction. Bayorn has no time for observances, has no time, it would seem, for courtesy. When Gandalf introduces himself, the response, never heard of him, and what's this little fellow? What's this little fellow goes some way toward dehumanizing, toward objectifying Bilbo. It seems very unlikely that a hobbit in a similar situation would have welcomed a stranger into his home with this kind of language. What's odd, though, is that both Gandalf and Bilbo continue to represent civility in this exchange. That is Mr. Baggins, a hobbit of good family and unimpeachable reputation, says Gandalf. Would Beorn care about Bilbo's family and reputation? Would that mean anything 
to this man, to this creature. We should say, perhaps, let me kill the uh, kill the slide there. Uh, we should say that Bjorn's exact nature is not entirely clear. It is not entirely transparent to the reader who or what Bjorn is. We know that he can appear like a gigantic man, but can also appear as a bear. He is described as a bear. In his letters, Tolkien once describes Bayorn as a man, but it seems as though he is drawing a distinction between man on the one hand and elves on the other. What he is saying is that Bayorn is not, is not immortal as the elves are. He is mortal as the men are. But it seems clear that he isn't entirely a man either. And there was a question, or a comment, I should say, that popped up here in the YouTube chat a little while ago. I think it may have been Kate who asked if, um, yes, it may have been Kate who asked if Bjorn reminds anyone of Tom Bombadil. And, and while, of course, they are fundamentally different in a number of ways, they are very similar in other ways. They have a sense of connection to their world and immediate environment. They also apparently have some sense of, of guardianship over that world and environment, and they are also singular. There is a Tom Bombadil. There is a Bjorn. And they don't seem to exist in the context of a larger culture. Certainly that is explicitly true of Tom Bombadil. And we have no reason to believe that that isn't true for Bjorn too. So here we see the beginnings of Gandalf's great plan. Here we see the beginning of the second unexpected party. It plays out rather beautifully, particularly when you realize what is happening. And I love the way that Tolkien manages to, to balance the unfolding of the story with the arrival of the dwarves. Here we see that Gandalf is possessed of one magic power, one, one ability which is truly transcendent in the context of the secondary creation, in the context of Middle-earth. And that is the ability to tell a story. He hooks Beorn, but good. He keeps him absolutely enchanted by the gradual unfolding of the story and the addition of greater and greater details until Bjorn, all unwitting, has invited 15 dwarves into or a party, I suppose, of 15 into his home. It's really rather lovely and I kind of adore it. Yes. Zygmorphic says, what would Bjorn do faced with the ring the way Bombadil was? What a fantastic question. Um, Hmm. I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know. I am immediately inspired to say that he would probably react in a very similar way. I wonder to what degree the ring would have power over Bayorn. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'll need to give that some thought. And perhaps when we reach Tom Bombadil, we can look back at Bayorn and draw this contrast uh, from the opposite perspective. Yes. Good. Good. Cedar Heights says, Bjorn may be in appearance like a bear, but his behavior is very unlike a bear. He lives in a group and has animal friends. Bears are solitary. He is more human than he seems, which is entirely true. And I like the way that that is framed, though, while it is true to say that he lives in community, while he has animal friends, they are still animals. Guardianship aspect to this. He doesn't seem to have anyone in his life who is the equivalent of a friend, anyone with whom he might be able to, to meaningfully converse, for example. And we shouldn't overlook, too, the little detail of, of Gandalf's good cousin Radagast, who lives near the southern borders of Markwood. 
More on that when we get to the movies, perhaps about, uh, yeah, about 16 months from now, we'll be able to talk a little about Radagast. Good. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. As, uh, as Tesley says there, the animals seem to be his property. He has no friends of a similar race. Good. Good. Um, excellent. Okay. Let's, uh, let's push on to see what happens next here as, uh, as they continue the tale. Or actually, as Gandalf begins the tale, we begin here. I just adore this. I just adore this, you guys. Here they sat on wooden benches while Gandalf began his tale, and Bilbo swung his dangling legs and looked at the flowers in the garden, wondering what their names could be, as he had never seen half of them before. I was coming over the mountain with a friend or two, said the wizard. Or two. I could only see one, and a little one at that, said Bjorn. Well, to tell you the truth, I did not like to bother you with a lot of us until I found out you were busy. I will give a call, if I may. Go on, call away. So Gandalf gave a long, shrill whistle, and presently Thorin and Dory came round the house by the garden path and stood bowing low before them. One or three, you meant, I see, said Bjorn. But these aren't hobbits. These are dwarves. Thorin Oaken... Excuse me. Thorin is Scottish now. I keep forgetting that. Thorin Oakenshield at your service. Dory at your service, said the two dwarves, bowing again. And here we get a sense of Beorn's hmm, greater purpose in the world. And we begin to see, too, a contrast between Beorn and the eagles. We discussed last time that the eagles do not seek out the goblins. They do not seek to battle the goblins. They do not seek to defeat the goblins. They enjoy ruining the goblins' malicious intent. They enjoy interfering with the goblins when they cross paths, but they don't actively seek out the goblins. They don't actively hate the goblins. Bjorn does. And while we're talking here about, uh, while we're talking here about the illusion of depth or the actual depth in Tolkien's secondary creation in his world building here, we should probably take a moment to talk about Thorin Oakenshield and why his name is Oakenshield, because Bjorn is about to recognize him and Bjorn is about to respond to him warmly because he is an avowed enemy of goblins, because he is famous. He comes from the goblin-hating family in these parts. Thorin, in this regard, is, is famous, and he is famous in part because of his chosen name, his secondary name, Oakenshield. The reason that Thorin is called Thorin Oakenshield is that at the Battle of Azanulbazar, at the, the very end of the last great goblin dwarf war, Thorin's shield was torn from him. He was left unarmed, so he took up an oak log and wielded it as a shield with, with this oaken shield in one hand and his axe in the other, and he slew many goblins that day. So, even in this moment, we get to see savagery in our desire to kill goblins, coupled with a certain civility, a respect for names, which, as we've discussed, is not actually that common. Let's look to, let me actually return to that slide so that I can refer to it properly here. Um, let's look to it, that first paragraph. Bilbo swung his dangling legs and looked at the flowers in the garden, wondering what their names could be, as he had never seen half of them before. I'm inclined to believe that the names of the flowers in Bayorn's garden are red flower, blue flower, that flower, sweet-smelling flower. That's probably as far as we go, because that is the representative name. 
So here we see within this, this single passage that tension, that conflict, that, that rich dynamic, that interplay between the civil and the savage, the West and the wild, the name of things and the naming of things. And of course, we also get to see the lovely unfolding of, uh, of Gandalf's story as he continues to just wildly manipulate, uh, just wildly manipulate Bjorn here. This unfolds for quite some time as I move on to the next slide. This unfolds for quite some time and Bjorn welcomes them into his home one by one in, in twos and threes. It's a lovely sequence. We're going to skip ahead um, in part because I only have about another half an hour to get through the rest of this chapter. Um, we're going to skip ahead to one of the most interesting pieces of poetry in the entirety of The Hobbit. This isn't perhaps my favorite piece of poetry in The Hobbit, but it is fascinating. This is the Withered Heath song that the dwarves sing, and I'll read it to you now. The wind was on the withered heath, but in the forest stirred no leaf. Their shadows lay by night and day, and dark things silent crept beneath. The wind came down from mountains cold, and like a tide it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned, and leaves were laid upon the mold. The wind went on from west to east. All movement in the forest ceased, but shrill and harsh across the marsh, its whistling voices were released. The grasses hissed, their tassels bent, the reeds were rattling, on it went, or shaken pool under heaven's cool, where racing clouds were torn and rent. It passed the lonely mountain bare and swept above the dragon's lair. Their black and dark lay boulders stark, and flying smoke was in the air. It left the world and took its flight. Over the wide seas of the night, the moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. So let's look first at what is actually happening in the poem. Let's try and, and, and parse the literal experience here before we delve deeper into symbolism. We begin with this account of the wind on the heath, but it has not yet struck the forest. Beneath the forest, no leaf stirs. There are shadows that have lain there by night and by day. Dark things creep beneath. But the wind comes down from the mountains. Like a tide, it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned. And we should perhaps be thinking in this moment of the Misty Mountains Cold song, where the last half of the song is transformed into an account of the strike of Smaug against the Lonely Mountain. But as we discussed at the time, Smaug is not personified or, or barely personified in that song. Instead, we see his influence. We see the beating of his wings. We see the fanning of his flames. But in this poem, some of those same symbols, some of those same ideas are turned to wildly different effect. The wind came down from mountains cold, like a tide it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned, and leaves were laid upon the mold. Here we see the scouring of the wind. It has passed across the heath, down from the mountains, like this great titanic tide, and it takes from the trees the leaves. So think back to that first verse, that first stanza, and look at what the forest, or consider what the forest must look like now. In the first instance, there stirred no leaf, shadows lay by night and day, dark things crept beneath, but now 
the, the leaves have been taken from the trees. There is no shadow now. There is no place where shadows can lie, and the dark things have been buried. The dark things have, too, been scoured. The wind went on from west to east. All movement in the forest ceased, but shrill and harsh across the marsh, its whistling voices were released. It is interesting, too, to note the passage of the wind, because the wind is not the only thing that has come down from mountains cold. The wind is not the only thing that is facing a forest. One of the things that we're doing through this song is foreshadowing the arrival of the dwarves into Mirkwood, which we'll basically get to at the end of this week's reading, but, but definitively get to next week. The dwarves, too, have come down from the west. They have come down from the mountains. They are about to enter the forest. The wind has scoured the forest until all movement ceased. Is that how the dwarves see themselves? Then out across the marsh, the grasses hissed, their tassels bent, the reeds were rattling, on it went, or shaken pool under heaven's cool, where racing clouds were torn and rent, across the marshes that lie beyond Mirkwood, across the lakes and the pools, gathering speed and gathering power and gathering fury, until it passed the lonely mountain bare and swept above the dragon's lair, their black and darkly boulders stark, and flying smoke was in the air. The wind came down from the mountains, has scoured the forest, has picked up speed across the marshland, and, and, it does nothing. It passes by the lonely mountain. It doesn't strike at Smaug. It doesn't sunder or tear him. It doesn't destroy him or even bring down the mountain. It passes the lonely mountain and swept above. Here, the wind and, if we want to extend the metaphor, the dwarves themselves pass beyond the mortal realm. It left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. And again, we get in the, the mention of stars there, we get evocation of the dragon fire, of course, on the slopes of the Lonely Mountain. But we also think back to the first part of the Misty Mountain song, when we're talking about the light that is caught within gems, caught with a dwarvish cunning and set beneath the earth as a thing of beauty. The stars were fanned to leaping light. Here, this wind doesn't concern itself with mortal concerns, doesn't concern itself with the mundane world, but instead passes beyond the mundane world, passes above the mundane world, and becomes mythic. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. And I wonder, as I think of this poem, what it is that the dwarves are intending. And we can question what it is that the dwarves are consciously intending versus what the dwarves are actually intending. Death of the author applies within the fictional frame to even the authors of tertiary creations, that is, creations created within the secondary world, are also susceptible to death of the author. I wonder if the dwarves see themselves as the wind, if they understand that apparently evident connection. 
I understand if, or, or I, I am curious if they understand what it is that the poem is saying. That in the end, regardless of what happens at the mountain, the real achievement of the wind will be transition, will be transcendence, will be the becoming of legend. We pass beyond the world into night and we boy with us the moon and we kindle with us the stars and we become legend, we become myth. Is that what the dwarves are planning? Is that, I guess not planning perhaps, but is that how they see their story? Is that how they see this playing out? Is there a connection, a direct and literal connection between the wind on the withered heath or the wind rising from the lonely mountain and the dwarves themselves? Let's see. Um, <laughs> Catherine says Bayorn does seem like he built his own canoe. Is that a Ron Swanson joke? Or I guess a Nick Offerman joke, at least? I like that very much. And yes, you're completely right. If I were casting uh, an adaptation of The Hobbit, I would certainly be thinking of Nick Offerman as Bayorn at this point. Yes. Um, good. G.J. <laughs> Corbin says, it feels like this meta-death of the author needs a special name. I will leave that to you guys. You are much smarter than I. Yes. Good. Yes. Lauren says, I don't think they're doing it for Bjorn. This is, this is the dwarves singing the song or telling the story. I don't think they're doing it for Bjorn. They're doing it for themselves. The dwarves seem to sing whenever they're comfortable. That, I think, is true, though it was only this time, as I thought about the song and the purpose behind it, that I was reminded of Thorin's response when Bilbo asks for the details of their endeavor. And he says, you heard our song. You were sitting right here. You heard us saying, what more could you possibly need to know? But of course, Bilbo still leaves himself to be rather prosy and has not yet given himself up to the, to the, 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 the metaphor of poetry, to the imagery and the symbolism of poetry. I wonder what we're to make of this. I wonder what the underlying intent is. And I'm really not sure. Because the closest thing for me is the prophecy that is inscribed upon the map. This feels prophetic. And if you have read the rest of The Hobbit before, if you know what is coming, it is a little bit prophetic. It does foreshadow certain very specific events later in the story. And, and metaphorically, certain other events. It, it, it tells us something about the thematic landscape at the end of the book that we are, as of this moment, in no position to appreciate. So where does this song come from? Is it prophetic? Is it magical? These are excellent questions. What do you guys think? Yeah. Let me catch up here. Um, Jackie says, heroes hope to be remembered, to live on beyond the realms of Middle-earth, like the wind beyond the stars. Yes, I think there may be something to that. Good. Yes. Oh, Princess Ostrich asks, can we get Death of the Author in Cinderin? I'll take a swing at that after we're done with the live session. Yes. Good. Coral asks, does the poem call back to Manwe, Lord of the Air, and his Queen Varda, the Queen of Stars? Oh, Coral, that's excellent. Yes, Probably. Probably. I mean, we know that though it would be many years before the song, I mean, it, the Silmarillion wouldn't be published until after Tolkien's death, of course, but it would be many years until many of those ideas were codified, but it's entirely possible that he was drawing upon, upon a kind of mythic framework that had already been conceptualized. Yes. Yes, that's beautiful. Good. Yes. <laughs> 
Danielle says, there's something ominous about it. If things go very wrong, there'll be smoke in the air and they'll be departing the world. I genuinely hadn't thought of that. I genuinely hadn't thought that there may be a kind of warning. Huh. I'm not sure. I'm not sure because at no point... The key word there for me would be past. Um, it passed the lonely mountain bear and swept above the dragon's lair. I think, I guess, it, it's both past and swept then. Because the past feels intentional and the swept feels active. And so I think that what we're seeing is the wind's true intention, that the wind never sought the lonely mountain, never sought to defeat Smaug, but is instead, yes, realizing its its true goal all along. That's fascinating, though. I'll, I'll give that some more thought. I, I rather like that. Yes. Yes. Good. It don't connect, says, rare appearance of Alistair's hand. My hands are constantly here in the bottom of frame as I gesture wildly as I'm, as I'm doing all kinds of things. Unless that was sarcasm, in which case I completely understand. Yes. <laughs> all right. Let's, um, good. Excellent. Let's, oh, let me check the, um, great. Yes. Okay, let's uh, push on here and take a look at our next slide, because after the song, oh, so Bayorn accepts uh, Gandalf's story and tells him that the story itself, even if it isn't true, is worth lodging for the night, which is, which is an element of civility, which I fully appreciate. As someone who appreciates a good story well told, um, I can completely see Bayorn appreciating this as fiction even if it isn't fact, but when he, excuse me, but when he returns the following morning, we see, of course, that it is fact, and he says this. It was a good story, that, that of yours, said Bayorn, but I like it still better now I'm sure it's true. You must forgive my not taking your word. If you had lived near the edge of Mirkwood, you would take the word of no one that you did not know as well as your brother or better. As it is, I can only say that I have hurried home as fast as I could to see that you were safe and to offer you any help that I can. I shall think more kindly of dwarves after this. Kill the great goblin! Kill the great goblin! He chuckled fiercely to himself. What did you do with the goblin and the walk? asked Bilbo suddenly. Come and see, said Bjorn, and they followed round the house. A goblin's head was stuck outside the gate and a warg skin was nailed to a tree just beyond. Bjorn was a fierce enemy. But now he was their friend, and Gandalf thought it wise to tell him their whole story and the reason of their journey, so they could get, so they could get the most help he would offer. The hatred of Bjorn for goblins is well established at this point, and this is enormously, enormously powerful. The story, now that it is true, has ignited something within Bayorn. And, and to be completely clear, he understands this story. He believes this story. He, he has, has become able to place the story in its proper context now, presumably because he didn't just kill the goblin and the warg. He certainly tortured them. He got the information from them and now has crafted these grisly trophies that he has placed outside his walls. That's not civil, but it is true of the wild. Bayorn has 
a fury, has a hatred, has a loathing, and has a desire for violence and vengeance that, that exceeds any other that we have seen thus far. It isn't contained, and it isn't fundamentally constructive. And this, I think, is one of the ways in which the wild is distinct from the West. The West is collaborative. People come together in communities, in shared culture, in villages and towns, and they work together. But in the wild, that kind of cooperation is much more rare. Again, we'll track that. Track that as we go forward. Yes. Good. Okay, I am running out of time. And we have to acknowledge before we wrap up tonight that there is one other major recurring element which becomes prominent in the latter part of this chapter and will continue to be prominent as we move into Markwood next week. And that is the sudden piling up of coincidence, of positive coincidence, of, you might even say, you catastrophe. Because this string of events, starting with the rescue of the eagles, has now brought the dwarves and Bilbo somewhere that they did not expect to be, but which is itself the most fortuitous place they could possibly be. We learned that they were trying to cross the Misty Mountains. They were trying to come much further south. Had they come much further south, they would have found themselves in trouble because that road, A, is being used by goblins now, and B, collapses into marshes within the, the bounds of Markwood, or I guess perhaps just beyond the bounds of Markwood, and is no longer passable and has not been for some time. And as we know from Gandalf's conversation with Bilbo earlier in the chapter, he has not passed this way in quite some time. Mirkwood is growing darker. The world is growing darker. But somehow, their catastrophic rescue from the trees by the eagles, the fact that they were taken further north than they intended, the fact that they came to Beorn, which was unintended, the fact that Beorn is able and willing to give them advice and guidance, which was unintended, has led them on perhaps not only the best path, but the only path through Mirkwood. Let's take a look at this slide. But your way through Mirkwood is dark, dangerous, and difficult, he said. Water is not easy to find there, nor food. The time has not yet come for nuts, though it may be past and gone indeed before you get to the other side, and nuts are about all that grows there fit for food. In there the wild things are dark, queer, and savage. I will provide you with skins for carrying water. I will give you some bows and arrows." but I doubt very much whether anything you find in Mirkwood will be wholesome to eat or to drink. There is one stream there, I know, black and strong, which crosses the path. That you should neither drink of nor bathe in, for I have heard that it carries enchantment and a great drowsiness and forgetfulness. And in the dim shadows of that place, I don't think you will shoot anything, wholesome or unwholesome, without straying from the path. That... You must not do for any reason. That is all the advice I can give you. Beyond the edge of the forest, I cannot help you much. You must depend on your luck and your courage and the food I sent with you. At the gate of the forest, I must ask you to send back my horse and my ponies. But I wish you all speed, and my house is open to you if ever you come back this way again. 
The Princess Ostrich asks, how much other caps lock is there elsewhere in Tolkien? This is my only example of caps lock that I can think of in The Hobbit. Uh, I don't remember any other all caps writing in The Hobbit, though I guess there may be some. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, and Cedar Heights anticipates a question, and and Kate as answers that question. Cedar Heights asks: Interesting, he has skins for water, skins for water and arrows to kill things, and yet Gandalf warns them not to mention the killing of animals. And then Kate says, perhaps he means for them to kill in defense. Gandalf's understanding of, uh, and yes, as Cedar Heights points out, he references food. Yes, he he is suggesting that they hunt for food in Mirkwood, even though he doesn't think it will be possible without leaving the path, which they must not do. Gandalf, it seems to me, has been in some ways very astute with Beorn. He warned them that Beorn would be incredibly dangerous, but also that he would be a, a, a kind associate and friend if they could win him over, which they certainly seem to have done. Beorn seems to understand that the dwarves will eat meat and that the... Uh, and that the, uh, wow, this is amazing. I'm sorry, I'm distracted because Jean just pulled out the beginning of the chapter, Gandalf's no, 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 with the second to last no in small caps, at least in many printings. Wow. Huh. That's, I'm, I'm very impressed that you pulled that out, Jean. I didn't remember that at all. Yes. Good. And Lauren says, it is also for him, meaning Bjorn, to choose when something dies. Uh, also for the, for him to choose when something dies is part of stewardship. They don't have the right to kill the things he is steward over, but he does. This is part of Bjorn's relationship with the wild. This is part of Bjorn's relationship with his immediate environment. We talked earlier about this, this guardianship. We talked about this protective role in which he nurtures, farms, maintains, whatever your, your verb of choice is. He regulates this land. He understands that the dwarves will need to eat and that the dwarves will hunt for food, but he warns them not to do it anyway. That I find interesting and complex and absolutely true to Bayron's approach to the wild and to, to the necessities of life. He doesn't make this choice himself, though what he doesn't bear for maybe somewhat different. I'm not so sure about that, but certainly he understands that the dwarves have made the choice that they have made. Good. Yes, Kate says, Mirkwood wasn't always bad, for it must have been something very, and it must have something very bad in it for the elves' protection to fail it. Sure, sure. Um, it don't connect, says, I'm curious about the history of Mirkwood. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll get to that too, I think. Hmm. I think I might need to insert an extra session here. Um, my original plan was to move on from The Hobbit immediately to The Fellowship of the Ring and then through the rest of The Lord of the Rings and then discuss the appendices of The Lord of the Rings only after we had discussed the rest of the book. But now I'm thinking that the best time to discuss the quest of Erebor might be immediately after The Hobbit. That might give us a really good uh, point of transition between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to look at this story from an entirely different perspective, I think would be valuable. So perhaps I'll insert an extra session somewhere in there, somewhere between the end of The Hobbit and the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring. We can talk about the quest of Erebor, we can talk about Mirkwood, we can talk about Dol Guldur, we can talk about the Necromancer, we can talk about the White Council, and we can talk in a broader sense about the history of Middle-earth. We can actually look at 
the movement of the Maiar, for example, and we can talk about the great powers here in, in Middle-earth. That, I think, would be would be fascinating. Yes. Yes, as Katie calls out, of course, the spiders are the descendants of Shelob, who is, of course, the daughter of Ungoliant. So even within Mirkwood, we're getting... We're getting the the original taint of evil and corruption in Middle Earth. We're getting manifestations of that, this this original and singular evil. So, yes, yes, I mean, yes, there's a lot there. Um, Chesley asks, will the quest of Erebor have Lord of the Rings spoilers? Um, hmm, I want to say no. I want to say that we don't. Um, A certain amount of context, perhaps, uh, but no spoilers that I recall. I will read it again before we get there, and uh, if necessary, flag that entire session as uh, as spoilers. Yes, good, good. The the way in which the quest of Erebor um, completely recontextualizes the Hobbit is is astonishing. Well, while in no way contradicting the Hobbit, that's vitally important. It doesn't remove the primacy or the importance of Bilbo's account, of Bilbo's experience, but it does set this story in a much wider context. Yes. Good. Um, Then let's, uh, yes, let's take a look then. Whoops. I accidentally jump ahead to the end of my slides. Let's talk about... Yes, we have, of course, an extra an extra session here. The first, but not many, yes. Um, and some, some positive thoughts on the, the quest of Erebor, too. Yes, good. Okay, let's, um, <coughs> excuse me, let's uh, take a look then at our final slide for this evening and more coincidence. As soon as they left his high hedges at the east of his fenced lands, they turned north and then bore to the northwest. By his advice, they were no longer making for the main forest road to the south of his land. Had they followed the pass, their path would have led them down a stream from that, from the mountains, excuse me, that joined the great river miles south of the Carrick. At that point, there was a deep ford, which they might have passed if they still had their ponies, and beyond that, a track led to the skirts of the wood and to the entrance of the old forest road. But Beorn had warned them that that way was now often used by the goblins, while the forest road itself, he had heard, was overgrown and disused at the eastern end and led to impassable marshes where the paths had long been lost. Its eastern opening had also always been far to the south of the Lonely Mountain and would have left them still with a long and difficult northward march when they got to the other side. North of the Carrick, the edge of Mirkwood drew closer to the borders of the Great River, And though here the mountains, too, drew down nearer, Bjorn advised them to take this way, for at a place a few days' ride due north of the Carrick was the gate of a little-known pathway through Markwood that led almost straight towards the Lonely Mountain. This is the full description of the absolute coincidence that I discussed earlier. If their plan had originally fared well... They would have foundered. They would have run into goblins. They would have run into impassable marshes. And when we mention impassable marshes, we must think back to the wind on the Withered Heath song and the passing of the wind over marshes. This is a fortuitous circumstance. Even here, the utter disaster, the utter calamity of being first taken by goblins down, down into Goblin Town, then being driven out of the the goblin tunnels, then being driven up trees by the goblins and the wargs on, as we discussed last week, that one night, that one special coincidental night, then being rescued by eagles, all of these things, all of these catastrophes, if you like, 
have been turned to good purpose. They have been made good and, and wholesome in a way that perhaps we would not have expected. So even now, eucatastrophe is, is building. Eucatastrophe is driving us forward. Yes. Good. Good. Uh, and with that, I cannot believe that I have actually finished just a few minutes early. That is excellent. I'm so, so pleased. If you guys have questions that you want to uh, throw out right now, then by all means do so. In the meantime, I will point out the next session here. The next session next week, next Thursday, March the 2nd at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, the Hobbit session, uh, chapter eight, rather, Flies and Spiders, in which Bilbo and the dwarves venture forth into Mirkwood. And Bilbo, well, Bilbo becomes a hero. We're going to have a lot to discuss. If you are pro-Bilbo, if you are team Bilbo, you are going to love the next chapter that we get to. I cannot wait for that. Yes. Yes, Rebecca says, Oh, what if the poem depicts what would have happened to the dwarves if their adventure had gone as planned? Hadn't thought this, hadn't thought this through yet. The idea just struck me. Yes, yes. I think that may be the case that um, it is possible that the wind could still have scoured through the forest, that the wind could still have crossed the marshes, that the wind could still have reached the lonely mountain and then passed upward into myth. It is important to note, if we are drawing that direct comparison between the wind in the poem and the dwarves themselves, with this, this force of prophecy, this force of, of destiny, almost, that the dwarves are no longer on the path that they were supposed to be on. That's interesting. That's curious. That is certainly eucatastrophic. We will see how that plays out when we finally get to the Lonely Mountain in about a month's time. Yes. Good. I love flies and spiders, says Princess Ostrich. Good. Excellent. Um, we're calling out teams. Wait, who's not Team Bilbo, says Damn Dirty Gamer. Uh, Team Dory, says Luke. Uh, Team Smaug, says it don't connect. Team Gandalf, says Chris Kelworth. Uh, Chris, of course, you're Team Gandalf. Team Sauron, says Princess Ostrich. Yes, Smaug is not Team Bilbo. <laughs> Team Bard, good Lord. Um, I miss running late, says Chesley. You know what? Let me just assure you, next week, we are going to run late. Next week's probably going to be a two-hour session. There really is a lot to discuss in, in Flies and Spiders, and it will give us an opportunity to not just talk about Bilbo's heroism, not just talk about Bilbo's adventuresome spirit and his, his took and bag and sides, but also to talk for the first time, I think, meaningfully about heroism in Tolkien's Middle-earth. We will have, by that time, sufficient evidence to look at what separates the good from the great, to look at what separates the, the large from the small, if you like, uh, to look at what virtues define and sustain heroes and, and kindle heroism in Middle-earth. A lot to discuss. Team Thranduil, says Madge. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to have a lot of support there, Madge, I've got to tell you. Not, not a lot of support. Um, <laughs> Team Proudfeet, says Sabrina. Excellent. <laughs> Team Took, says Carol. Good. Good. Okay, so all of that is for next week. Let me make sure that I haven't missed anything. Yes. Um, excellent. Okay, I seem to be entirely up to date. This is, as I said, a slightly shorter session, though it is 9.25, which is just about perfect. Guys, thank you all so, so much for joining me. And as I said, um, do stay tuned 
for some big announcements. Uh, if you don't already and you're listening to the podcast, then you should definitely follow me on Twitter at PaperBullets. Follow StoryWonk on Twitter at StoryWonk. You can head on over to StoryWonk.com and subscribe there to the newsletter. Big announcements coming soon. If you like these seminars, if you enjoy the work that I do, if you like in particular this kind of literary analysis, then uh, then yes, I will have some news coming pretty soon. Good. Team Lee Pace's eyebrows says it don't connect. Hey, hey, hey. We are all Team Lee Pace's eyebrows, even when he isn't particularly well employed by his film. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's uh, wrap this thing up. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. Uh, I will be back next Thursday with more With Flies and Spiders. As I said, I will talk to you all very soon. Until then, take care. Take care.